Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 6, Episode 1. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, I will be joined by several of our team members at Unbridled Capital to do a State of the Union of Franchise M&A for 2024. Items of discussion will include considerations when doing a deal in 2024, commentary on current supply and demand for buying and selling, lending, cap rates, EBITDA multiples, thoughts on inflation, sales forecasting, and timing of a sale, and examples of real-time issues affecting M&A transactions. This discussion was also recently presented as a webinar and can be found in its entirety on our website. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. I'll just go ahead and get going now. So thank you guys so much for joining. A couple of years ago, we started to do this webinar at the beginning of the year, and we call it kind of the State of the Union of Franchise M&A. And this year, it's 2024. And I think it's been a pretty popular one. And we kind of want to get together here. We've got some questions and some topics to discuss. Some of the topics and questions have been similar across the last couple of years. And so just hang in there with us and we'll try to spend five or six minutes collectively on each question and then move along. We will have, uh, if you're a web, first of all, I guess, if you're uh, listening on podcast, the restaurant boiler room, you'll hear this in a couple of weeks, I guess. Thank you for being a podcast listener and we hope you enjoy. And whether you're watching or listening, feel free to reach out to me or Derek or Peter anytime if you have questions about buying or selling or financing a franchise business. If during this webinar, you have questions, feel free to uh, type them in. We'll watch them and then just kind of interject. It's kind of meant to be very conversational. So feel free to do that. And then lastly, I think no worries about getting a copy of it. If you have uh, signed up to attend or you're watching or listening, you'll get a copy of this webinar afterwards via email. And with that being said, you know me, Rick Ormsby, and you know Derek Ball in our office and Peter Fisher in our office too. We're thankful that you're aboard. And the first question for the crowd is this. Carol's announcement just came out pretty big this morning and pretty big news. It was that uh, Burger King Corporate is going to acquire Carol's for what amounts to be about a billion dollars for a little over a thousand restaurants. So it's a billion dollar enterprise value, a thousand restaurants. And uh, they've said a couple of things. They're going to remodel five to 600 stores over the next five to seven years, it sounds like. And then they're going to refranchise them. And then I think it's publicly stated that they're wanting to refranchise some or many of these markets to local franchisees in their communities that have no more than 50 locations. And so I guess I just kind of open it up for a couple of quick comments as we get started. What do you guys think about that? I mean, they, they put their, their money where their mouth is. You know, we're going off of the same. We don't have any special insights at, at Unbridled in terms of the deal. You know, we're reading the same stuff online that you all are. They've been pretty public for a year or two now that they want to have a 50 unit cap and all that good stuff and focus on small to medium sized operators rather than the, the big giants. And I guess they put their money where their mouth is. They put a billion bucks behind that. So people say things all the time without really acting and they sure acted on it. So Fairly impressive. We'll see how it works out and plays out over the next five years, though. Yeah, I agree. Uh, shocking, but impressive and exciting. And exactly what Derek said, kind of putting their money where their mouth is, and it should do well for them. And then uh, hopefully they can get the stores into operators locally and continue to get the brand going in the right direction. 
they've had a nice turnaround clearly over the last 12 months or so. The demeanor and the management teams are, I think, exciting that Tom Curtis was there doing a big endorsement of the brand at the RFDC in November. The price they paid is a high price, right? Like we all look at the price for a billion dollars for a thousand restaurants is maybe three or four times more than what which you think they would bring in. But but I agree, it's putting your money where your mouth is. And so if you're if you want to reclaim the flame and revitalize the assets and you want to put these markets in the hands of boots on the ground franchisees that know the towns and communities, then this is a bold bet. And it would be a, I can understand why they would do it. And I'm like you all, I'm excited to see what comes of it over time. Uh, you know, I'm personally friends with a new Burger King franchisee that just acquired 35 units in the Southeast that kind of fits the bill of the franchisees are trying to put into the marketplace. And he's a great operator and a good team and great people, you know? So like, I think there's this Maybe Burger King might be on the tip of something that may become a bigger trend. I mean, what do you all think? Like this idea, this pushback against the two to 300 unit operator that's been building and building and growing over the last seven to eight years now that we read about every month in all these publications. It's kind of a decided change. And maybe that experiment wasn't overly successful for the Burger King folks. What do you all think about that? Any comments there? Yeah, I think it's smart, you know, trying to get down to the 40 and 50 unit operators had more of a hands on feel and just increase the brand presence and change the reputation a little bit and, and just continue to go forward. Might we see it in other brands as well? Maybe. You know what I mean? I noticed, you know, like in oh, 2011, 2012, 2010, 11, 12 time frame, Pizza Hut did a little bit of this. So I've seen it firsthand or secondhand, I guess, you know, they were struggling at the time, actually, and they had a bunch of restaurants that were coming up for sale that were struggling to find buyers or needed a lot of refurbishment and remodeling. And so they actually took over a handful of markets and operated them and remodeled them and built up the operations, took them from some struggling franchisees. I'm not saying Carol's is struggling, but they did in, in the Pizza Hut system at that time. And then they refranchised them. And a lot of those, some of those decisions and some of those actions were successful. Others have kind of meandered a little bit and they've changed hands a few times over the last 10 years. But clearly it was a way to put a jolt into a market that might need CapEx and need new lifeblood for franchisees. I just think you might be on a trend here. So watch the trend. Maybe you see other legacy brands that have been around. Think of brands that have three or 4,000 units or more that have been around a long time that may have languished with unit count, with bigger franchisees that may kind of been consolidated and aren't doing much in their brands. And then the franchisor sits back and says, gosh, this brand is so valuable. This is an internationally known brand and it is worth our money and time to go back in and acquire stores and and then to enhance our brand image and to get new franchisees in the system. So it could be a beginning of a trend for the future, especially since a lot of franchisors just don't have corporate units anymore since they did all the refranchising in the last five or six years. Any other comments before we move on to question number just, uh, two? I saw a couple, couple of Q&A questions. A couple quick things. One person clarified that the billion might include the $500 million of remodel they want to do on 600 stores. Makes sense. We were actually trying to kind of figure out the math on our side and it wasn't quite computing. So that might kind of make sense to me. And someone asked what refranchising was. It just simply means the franchisor sells back their restaurants to the franchisees. Um, we don't know if they resell the stores, when that'll happen, under what construct or how they'll do it. But it'll likely take some time because they're probably going to remodel the assets before they do so. So it's probably not something they'll do immediately. I don't know. I have no knowledge. But OK, so that's number one. Here goes. Here we go to, to question number two. 
commentary on the current supply and demand for buying and selling restaurants. So what's it like out there in the marketplace? What are we seeing under our engagements? That kind of question for people who are tuning in. And then we'll get into pricing and what we expect for 2024. What do you guys think about the current supply and demand of buying and selling restaurants right now and franchises? I'll say generally the, the supply is picking up. I think the demand is generally still there. I think people are being a lot, are scrutinizing deals a lot more. We have a few recent examples where the outcome of the deal has been just as strong as the outcome as it was a year ago, but the total offers submitted on the deal might have been 50 or 60%. If we expect 10 offers, maybe we only got five or six, but the top few were still just as competitive as they were when we would have had 10. So I think you're not seeing as many buyers in the market or you're just having people scrutinize. People aren't just throwing offers out there like they used to. But uh, yeah, in terms of supply, it's picking up. That's for sure. I don't think uh, there weren't a lot of deals in the market really Q2, Q3 of last year. Q4, we noticed a little bit of an uptick. And I think it's going to continue quite a bit here in Q1. I mean, just as an anecdote, I think in the last two weeks, this might be another question. In the last two weeks, we've had 10 inbound phone calls from franchisees looking to potentially sell. That doesn't mean we're launching 10 deals next week. Maybe we get three or four of those, but it's a pretty good indicator of the fact that there's going to be quite a few sellers in the market. Yeah, that's. A, I think that's a good point. This 10 phone calls in the last two weeks would be a big departure of what we normally see this early in the year. Even in normal year, it's probably two or three times more than what, what I would expect. This is just from 20 years of touching and feeling it. You know, it doesn't, and Derek's right. It doesn't mean we're going to take 10 new assignments. If anything, we have to deal with expectations. Like we try to keep a 90% success rate in the deals that we do. So that typically means that we're going to turn away a good number of the people whose businesses we evaluate just because their expectations may not be in line. And that's something that I think we're going to, that we're kind of working through. I mean, people have, I mean, I think people, sellers especially, are becoming more reasonable on the value of their businesses. What happened in 2021 is we had record EBITDA, low, low commodity costs and, and low borrowing costs. So all of those things coming together created a kind of a situation that may not be repeatable, right? So it's taken a few years and maybe, frankly, a couple of hard knocks from all of us to realize that um, that, that that may not happen again and that to, we may be now in 2024 just operating in kind of a normal slog it out. 1%, 2% same store sales growth, fighting for margin type of business. And that's what the business has been for the last 30 years before COVID got in the way and made it all crazy. So that's just a couple of comments. What do you say? You got anything, Peter, that you'd suggest or say? Yeah, same thing. I mean, the sellers are coming around. It's not the same as it was in 2021. 2022 was hard. 2023 is better. And I think the, the expectations are starting to come around between buyer and seller as the same, kind of same interpretation of the valuation. I mean, and Derek's right, you know, the buyers are less buyers, but the quality buyers are still out there. And and um, so, you know, it's the demand is still there for sure. Yeah, a couple of comments about buyers, right? So we are seeing more strategic buyers and independent sponsors in the marketplace versus institutional or financial buyers. Now, what does that mean? Like fewer private equity groups and family offices that aren't existing franchisees buying assets and more existing franchisees 
family offices that own restaurants, franchisees of other brands, independent sponsors, new people who are new to the industry, but are individual or a small group of investors. So those types of buyers were seen much more. I mean, it's almost been ghost towns with like a ghost town with private equity groups over the last six to nine months. You picture like John Wayne going, walking through the old town with the scrub brush, just kind of rolling down the street there. It's kind of been that way a little bit with the private equity groups. So Another thing I'd note is that we have about 15 engagements right now that we're actively working on with buyers and sellers. And usually at this time, and Derek could probably speak to this, but usually at this time, we're, you know, we probably have like three or four, maybe five different brands that we're working with across these 15 to 20 engagements. But to this year, we've got 10 different brands in 15 deals. And so I think we're seeing maybe fewer of the larger legacy brands transacting in the marketplace. And more of these uh, tier two brands, large franchisees and different brands. We're doing a couple of non-restaurant deals now too. I've just noticed that that trend has been remarkably different. And most of, not all, but most of the franchisees in those tier two brands of scale may have 50 locations or whatever they have, but most of them are independently owned and operated by first generation or second generation franchisees. So there's something to that. And I think a lot of these 10 new phone calls we've gotten so far this year have been that same type of demographic. So that demographic is probably going to be a little active as we start as we start the year. Any other comments on supply and demand that you guys would would make? I don't think so. All right. Let's see. The next question. Dun dun dun. What do we expect for MA activity in 2024? Now that's a broad question. And my goodness, have we not answered that wrongly so many times it hurts, you know, <laughs> I mean, with all the craziness in the world that we live in. But what do you guys expect? What do you think will happen for 2024? Well, just based off the first two weeks of this, you know, this year with all the inbound calls we've had, surely it's going to improve and be more M&A activity out there. Just after 2022, not much activity. After 23, not much activity. 24 just seems like it's going to improve and have more deals available for buyers. Um now, I don't expect us to close maybe one, maybe two in Q1 of this year, but a Q2 should be much better. Just the summer of last year, like they get written, mentioned earlier, we were just slower the fall and summer. So those deals that we did have, you know, they should probably close in Q2 of this year. But, you know, just so much demand, I would think there's going to be a lot more activity this year just based on the slower the past two years. Another point I'll make is... With new builds costing so much, if you're going to build a $2 million store, $2.2, $2.5 million store, you got to have the sales. And so if the sales aren't there, it kind of makes more sense to purchase assets instead of building these new assets if it does, if the model doesn't work, um, building a brand new store. So I can see a lot of people look, looking to just purchase instead of building new stores. Yeah, yeah that's I'd probably- say I'm, I'm generally done making long-term predictions after the last four Heck, COVID was four years ago now, pretty much, March of 2020. So almost four years ago, it feels like two. But uh, I'm kind of done making long-term predictions just based on the inbound phone calls we've been getting. I'd, I'd have to think that Q1 and potentially Q2 are pick up quite a bit and get pretty busy. Like Rick said, I mean, I, I think that's at least double, if not triple, the inbounds we would get in the first couple of weeks of the year. So if that's a sign of, of things to come, it'll continue. In terms of, you know, it seems like everything you read online as well. You know, there are a couple articles floating around there that restaurant MA is supposed to pick up this year just to stabilizing commodity costs and sales and PM. Just everything is supposed to somewhat stabilize this year. It seems like every time that happens, you know, another war breaks out or a ship gets stuck in a canal somewhere. But at the end of the day, 
it seems like a pretty positive trend compared to 2022. 2023 was better than, you know, 2021 was crazy good. 2022 was pretty bad for most people. 23 stabilized a little bit. And the idea is we just kind of continue floating in that 2023 bandwidth, at least for the first half of this year. My numbers are going to be a little bit off in terms of percentages, but, you know, like 2021 was a ton of activity. And then like we saw probably a 70% drop in business in 2022 over 21. And then in 2023, we were probably up 10 to 15% roughly over 2022. I kind of feel like we're kind of on that same trajectory probably for 2024. And I've got no idea whether this will be right or wrong. We'll see at the end of the year. But my thing is that maybe we'll see volume of our business be up maybe 10 to 15% this year. I mean, it could go higher than that. I mean, potentially it could also run the risk of some deals that don't happen or fail because financing or capital doesn't. I think there's higher risk to, to all the assignments we're doing now versus um versus the last couple of years because the financing isn't as strong and the conditions aren't as good and the deals are more arduous and the brands are going through kind of, you know, up and down cycles during due diligence. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. When Peter mentioned that it was bone dry in 2023 in the summer, I mean, that was absolutely true. Like that was a time frame where franchisees were just starting to kind of feel the effects of the year over year sales and profit increases from the 2022 sale many pricing initiatives that they took. And so these a lot of these operators in the summer of 2023 are like looking at their P&Ls and they're like, hey, my May EBITDA is up 40% over May of 2022, right? So that's not an environment where people like sell something, right? They typically hold on to it during that time. So it was really dry in the summer of 2023, which is going to mean that the closings are usually in our business like nine months after a dry period, you're not going to have any closings. So it'll be a bit dry, but new assignments really may pick up in, in the first quarter, like Derek's saying. I'm just trying to think of a couple other comments. There has been some pent up demand, right, guys? I mean, from sellers, don't you think? Like, how do you think about that? People who may have missed 2021, but still have a good business that's recovered a little bit? Yeah, there's a lot of people that missed the boat in 2021. They didn't want to sell on 2022, 2023. They started rolling over. And of course, people are just now starting to get year end PLs. So I could see supply even picking up here over the next 30 days as these year end PLs start getting finalized and people start reaching out a little more. But essentially, you've got a whole year post-2022 that looks a little bit better. People might even wait another quarter or two um, if 2024 is looking pretty. But yeah, I think you've got a lot of people that that miss the boat. They're tired, four years of operating through COVID. They've got what they need. They've got the income they need to retire and enjoy their lives. And, and it's just their time and time to pass it on to the next generation. Yeah. The key there is, Derek, you mentioned missing the boat in 2021. Key there is for them to realize that maybe 2021 maybe not coming back around and, and kind of accepting that 2023 is was a good year compared to 2022 and that 24 is going to be about the same. And so as long as they have that kind of realization, I think it could help pick up this year as well. Keep in mind that the perspective, Peter's perspectives are from a, he worked in a Taco Bell at the store level operating restaurants for a Taco Bell franchisee, his father-in-law, before he came to work at Unbridled about two and a half years ago, a little less than that. So when you hear his perspectives, they kind of have that background to them. I think one thing, this is kind of going off script a little bit, but it just popped into my head. We've talked a little bit about the importance of supply and demand. And if we have a big uptick in supply in the first quarter, but the demand is not any more than it is now, we may 
get to a situation where some brands have difficulty doing lots of transactions. And we won't, I won't name the brand, but we have been fairly heavily involved in one brand over the last six months or so where there've been a lot of sellers, a lot of people selling. And there's probably another brand or two that are going to go through the same type of cycle in 2024. This is just, I mean, I know it may sound salesy, but it's not meant to be, but, but you just may be careful about how quickly you come to market. You don't want to wait till April or May to come to market if you're planning to sell this year. And then like there'll be five other deals on the market at that time. You know what I mean? Like that could have a bad pricing impact for you. I just kind of, you know, bring that out. What, any other Any other comments? There's one note, you know, I think there's been a lot of predictions and maybe we're just missing the boat here and, and not seeing it. And there were a lot of predictions that 2023 was going to be full of bankruptcy and distress. And I know there were some, obviously there were some big profile ones out there. My opinion, and we don't do a ton of bankruptcy work naturally, we just don't, but I don't feel like I heard quite as much distress as expected. There was some, don't get me wrong. And there's plenty of people out there that I'm sure are close on covenants that aren't necessarily in bankruptcy. But I don't feel like you heard about as many bankruptcy deals as people were expecting. I mean, there were three high profile ones in one brand. And outside of that, it was a little bit quieter than I think expected. If, if I'm wrong on that, and I just wasn't reading the right stuff, let me know. But we noticed that kind of when we were thinking about these questions. and and Yeah, because we predicted that last year, right? If yeah. you didn't go under in 2023 off of 2022 numbers, most people did better in 23. So we wouldn't expect it to necessarily pick up. Obviously, big interest rates are rolling through P&Ls now. So maybe that tightens people up a little bit. But we haven't really seen it. We haven't gotten a lot of inbounds on distress. And, you know, there's some, but not like expected. Let's talk a little bit about EBITDA multiples and cap rates or technical question here. What's going on there now? I mean, like, what are we seeing? Where's it been? Where's it going? That kind of stuff. What do you guys think? In terms of the real estate yeah, side of things, we were looking back at our notes from last year. And at the same time last year, the REIT market was in the, the 675 to seven and a quarter range, which everyone was really disappointed by because the year before that, it was in the five and a quarter to 575 range. And we met with a couple of REITs out at RFDC in November. And at that time, those specific REITs were at 775 or eight generally for bulk sales. Keep in mind, these are bulk sales, not 1031 one-offs. So we expect the interest rates to kind of be, or cap rates to be generally still in that ballpark on a bulk sale, just interest rates haven't fluctuated too much since then. But yeah, you just look at that two-year trend, we were almost 250 basis points better two years ago than where we are now. Naturally, interest rates are significantly higher. So, but just kind of interesting looking back at the old notes. So they're up about what? So last year since at this time, year, the they're, since last year at this time, they're up uh, based on our notes about 75 basis points. Over a two year period, it's, I mean, 250, 225, 250 basis points in real estate and big swaths of real estate means that the, no kidding, now we'll hold your seat here. That means that uh, the value of that real estate is like 40% lower than it was two years ago. And that's a big whammy, right? Assuming that sales and uh, have stayed the same. So I think that's a big change, right? But I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, should it? That, uh, that interest, because interest rates and cap rates move similarly, there's just a time lag in between them. But uh, if you got a comment, please make it for sure, especially if, it, if it, it's who I think it is. I'd love to hear the comment. So so re- what about the 1031 real estate market? I mean, you guys, I mean, similar changes, inventories on the market with a lot of retrading. Time of real estate being on the market is is really high and increasing. Cap rates may be stabilizing, obviously, or soon to stabilize. How do you all think about that? 
Yes, same. I think it's, you know, it's trending in the, the same direction, still better than the REIT market. But yeah, I mean, it's just inevitable. These We predicted it last year and it came true. It just takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. But with so many hikes that we had last year, it's just cap rates in general up. Mm-hmm. A couple of comments that I would make is that we didn't expect. Like one would be not as much seller financing and fewer kind of earnout provisions in our deals. Now, I know we're talking about real estate now, but I mean this on the operation side. Postulated last year that there was going to be a lot more of that because of the banking situation and because buyer and seller would be a part in price. But I mean, we didn't see, did we see one earnout in any of our closed transactions last year? And did we see any seller financing? I mean, it's been talked about, but I haven't seen, I mean, I'll let Derek Noodle on it. I don't know that we transacted one. 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 Yeah, one deal. It's a small, small chunk. Very little of it relative to what we thought last year, right? So that may be an interesting piece of information for those who are watching and listening. A second would would be you would expect operators who own the real estate probably to hold on to it and sell the business only if the cap rates are impacting the real estate values so much. But that's not what we're seeing. It's actually the opposite. It's almost been a flood to sell the real estate with the business, right, guys? And I guess in I'm thankful for those types of franchisees who have kept their real estate for all these years and, and do it at once because flexibility is a big deal when you're uh, when you're selling through a more difficult time, right? Yeah, I don't think I saw any difference in people holding the real estate or getting rid of it in the transaction. I feel like it was about the same as the previous year. And um, it, it kind of goes back to one of our previous comments, maybe sellers are just willing to accept that the cap rates aren't going, you know, we were talking about you know, 2024 is going to be about the same, maybe a little bit better than 23, but uh, maybe they're accepting that these cap rates aren't going to move anytime soon. And so instead of holding it for three or four more years, we still don't know what that's going to look like in three or four more years. And they're just ready to sell that part of it too. Yeah. What do you say? Yeah, I, There's a comment in here that's kind of a couple of comments. What do you, uh, let's see. Robotics. This it's kind of unrelated to our current discussion, but um, we can we'll, we'll hit that in in a few. So so what do you think? You know, a couple of other comments. Do we think that cap rates are going to change much? And I I think we you know it's been a common question with both cap rates and we're going to talk about EBITDA multiples in a little bit here, and and that's obviously a critical component in what we do. People immediately when they see that the Fed's talking about a couple of interest rate easing kind of actions this year, they're saying this is going to impact valuations and it's going to you know change things. And my my gut is don't hang your hat on that being a material change environment. It's really just kind of a headline now that may or may not come true. But three interest rate decreases of, of a 25 basis points each is not all that material to the environment. So I, I wouldn't expect it to spur a difference in demand too much. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I mean, the increases honestly didn't crater demand. So it, it's hard for me to believe that a couple of decreases is suddenly going to pop prices up or anything like that. Prices generally stayed fairly stable for most businesses. And I guess we can just jump into multiples now. Some some of our deals are seeing no change. I mean, we're, we're continuing to see premium brands and premium businesses continue to get premium multiples. Maybe you see them fall a little bit just because people aren't loving the, the eight plus percent interest rates. Maybe you're seeing them fall a little bit, but I think you're seeing it worse. And the struggling brands or struggling businesses, I think, are seeing a bigger drop off in terms of interest and price. And I think some of it just comes to demand. A few years ago, you could throw out a struggling business and still have quite a bit of interest. Like I said earlier in this call, I think buyers are a little more picky on what they want to jump into. They don't want to jump into a turnaround market 400 miles away. If it's going to be a turnaround, it's got to be 
contiguous to their current operations. Or a few years ago, they might have taken that chance and gone after it. Now they're not. So naturally, if you're if, if the demand and, and the total buyer pool starts to drop a little bit, I mean, generally speaking, you're going to see prices and multiples fall a little bit too. So my expectation would be struggling brands and struggling businesses continue to be tough sells at good multiples. You've got to really come down on your expectations there as a seller. But if you've got a premium business and a premium brand, especially in a good business-friendly area of the country, you can still expect pretty strong pricing. I mean, maybe instead of six and a half, it's six and a quarter, but I think you're still going to have enough interest to where that price is going to is going to still be strong. That's my opinion. Yeah, what do you think, Peter? Similar comment? Yeah, 100%. I mean, the hot and popular brands is going to be about the same, but the ones that are struggling a little bit more either operationally or in the brand, possibly a half to a full turn in EBITDA, maybe. That's what I would predict. Yeah, even struggling brands and businesses a few years ago, we rarely sold things for less than five and a half. And that's on a post-GNA basis. Now it is not uncommon for us to be telling sellers four and a half or 475 or maxing out at five. That's even in a struggling business three years ago, we would have never, we didn't sell anything for really sub five and a half with very, very limited exceptions. So it's certainly dropped in certain brands. This is an interesting, and Peter, Peter mentioned it earlier. Is it going to be a development comment? It is going to be a development comment. Yeah, me too. You know, yeah. Here's just an easy example, and these aren't perfect numbers. If it costs you $2 million to build a site, throw FF&E in there. Some brands, by the way, are more than that. Maybe some are a little bit less, but we're talking a freestanding QSR asset. And let's say national average EBITDA is 150 grand. I mean, that's a pretty horrible 13 and a half year payback period where you can go buy something you know is going to get 150K of EBITDA and you can buy it for, say, six times. I mean, you're paying less than half of what it would take to build the exact unit. And by the way, you don't even know you're going to get 150 in that new unit. It might flop and, and break even in terms of EBITDA. So that's another factor. I think that's uh, also uh, brands that are pushing massive development agreements, I think is generally looked at as somewhat of a negative unless it's a really attractive market and it's there's a lot of green space to it. You're going to see brands like Wingstop already. You're already seeing it. There's a reason those are so attractive. You can go and put one down for four or five hundred grand before tenant improvement allowance, and and you know the ROI on those are just significantly better than almost any other QSR concept out there. Really, it might be the best, with some exceptions. That's where you're seeing the professional investors, you know, continue to make big offers on those types of franchise businesses, right? And the financial buyers, the only place they're actually looking because their calculations on their return on invested capital calculations are going to require them to have big development in, as a part of what they do. And if your brand is doing a million three as an AUV or a million four, well, I mean, I just make the comment that ain't nobody going to be developing at a million three or a million four when you got to spend two and a half million dollars to get there. So it's 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 probably a driving force why the EBITDA multiple has stayed high in brands like or shot up in brands like Wingstop and Taco Bell and some of these other brands, right? Whereas the ones where the unit counts languishing and there's nobody building any units, and as a matter of fact, they need to close stores. It's um, the buyer pool changes a little bit there. I think that's a good, really good point. EBITDA, fortunately, we can expect it to stable. We hope it stabilizes a little bit. I think you'll start to see a little more normal fluctuations. 
you know, short of the next pandemic in, in August or wherever it's going to happen, you know, it seems like EBITDA, as a buyer, you might feel better about the EBITDA year in 2023 than you've felt about any EBITDA you've looked at over the last few years. Just seems like a little bit more stable of a figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, one quick question someone had um, in terms of the EBITDA multiple on the Carol's deal, I haven't researched it enough today to really know. That seems like a low multiple. You're saying 3.9 times. My guess is when you factor in the $500 million of CapEx that goes into that, my gut tells me that's low. I would I would think based on the price I saw, it was more like an eight or 10, but I haven't researched it enough. In terms of the robotics question, that's a, I'm sure that could be its own webinar. Honestly, I don't follow it enough other than reading the same articles that you all do. I know some franchisees that are pushing their franchisors pretty hard on it. If minimum wage keeps going up, you can expect the timeline to accelerate, I guess would be my general perspective. California has been the first to market in a lot of ideas and a lot of new things over the years. They really started franchise restaurants, right? That's where it all started. So maybe they'll be the ones to figure out robotics. In terms of AI, I'm going to rely on the franchise org for that. I am not a technology person. I'm sure there are benefits, robotics, AI, all that stuff. I'm sure there are real benefits that'll be seen in the next five years, probably, if I'm yeah. if I'm thinking properly. But I'm sure you've got an IT department at the franchisors that are hitting that pretty hard. It's generally out of my uh, forte. You see it at some of the brand conventions we attend. But let's jump quickly to lending market. I don't want to spend more than a minute or two here. We've got five more questions I want to answer. There's, they're going to be good ones. So what do we, any any comment, what's happening in the lending market? You know, we do an annual lender survey and it comes out usually in the June, July timeframe. And it's really good. You usually get like 30 or 40 lender responses and they go into detail about what what's going on with rates and terms and you know, just the environment. And so keep an eye for that out in the middle of the summer. Any, uh, as it pertains to our deals, what have you seen? What have you heard in the last few months? We haven't had, I think lenders, they've been a little more temperate recently. You've got some lenders out there saying we're, we're, we're open for business. We're really wanting to, to do a lot of work this year. You've got some lenders that are just a little quieter, but I'm not hearing a massive amount of like huge negativity, at least on the calls we're having. We might not be talking, we're not talking to everybody every day, by the way. So some of our information with the lenders is outdated. But generally speaking, every business we've had has found a lender. As far as I know, at the moment, I know there's a couple of deals out there. We're looking for bank debt at the moment, but we haven't necessarily had trouble finding the debt. The borrower is more and more important than it's maybe ever been. It's always important, don't get me wrong, but I think the specific borrower and their operations expertise and the lender getting comfortable with them is more important than it's ever been. But even our tough assignments, there are lenders out there. You might pay more, you might have worse terms, but generally speaking, the money is is there. It might be harder to find is all. Yeah, the only thing I would add is, you know, over the past two years, there have not been much activity. So it's in a borrower's favor to lenders looking for new business, you would think, um, especially if they're neutral on the subject, you know, whether it's not, not overly excited, not overly negative, but they're look, most likely looking for new business. So it helps the financing piece of it as well. And like Derek said, we hadn't had a single deal that did not find financing. So, And then I think that speaks to your point. Peter, about supply and demand. There are fewer restaurant lenders at the conventions and things this year than there were last year and the year before, right? So they've they've whittled down a little bit, but still the amount of activity with refinancing has been almost nothing, right? Since interest rates have gone up, why would anyone refinance until their term comes up, which is a, an issue possibly for the next couple of years as they do come up if interest rates stay high. But like no one's going to be refinancing their company if they don't have to. So all that business is dried up. And M&A activity, we just got finished telling you, has been down like 70% since 
since 2021 and then just on a gradual uptick since then. So there's more lenders in the marketplace than there are deals to do. So that's been a positive impact in terms of availability of capital, I think. And hopefully it stays that way. But again, if it changes and there's more supply, you may see the conditions change a little bit. Remembering, of course, that lenders typically see things six months to three months to six months in arrears from what's happening like right now at this moment. You know what I mean? So they are largely looking at a situation that might be a little more pessimistic than we might be looking at it at this very instant, because they're looking maybe at data from the beginning of Q3 if it wasn't as good as it is now. So how about the next question? Yesterday's buyers were family office and PE consolidators. Who is today's buyer? We've talked about this a little bit, so let's make this one a quick one. But what do you think about that? Who are today's buyers for these businesses? A little more strategic buyers than than you're used to. And I think that has to do, like I said, with some of the pricing and a lot of deals falling a little bit. They've caught up to the PE buyers a little bit. PE really likes the to buy and then grow aggressively. And when that growth, that new build ROI doesn't look so pretty, they're going to stay on the sidelines a little bit longer. When that 8%, 8.5% interest rate starts really negatively affecting their ROI and they're going to struggle to want to sell in the next five to 10 years with the the payback they're looking at. You're going to find a 20 or 30 year old buyer that doesn't, it's not as big of a deal to them. It's a big deal. Don't get me wrong, but comparatively, it's a little bit easier for them to swallow. So you've got midsize and large franchisees as well that are generally growing a little more aggressively than maybe they used to. Maybe they see an opportunity because the other, the PE buyers are a little bit on the sideline. Maybe that just Bring some people out of the woodwork that didn't think they had a chance at getting deals before. That might be a that might be part of it. I'm not sure. Rick, anything from you? Well, I would say there's a couple of we only two of our deals have private equity buyers right now, which is kind of low. And if we had a couple of deals that kind of fell apart last year, just a few, the majority of them were private equity based kind of deals. And so uh, I, I make the you know I just make the make that observation that that market is just not really stable and strong right now. You know what I mean? So if you are a listener or a watcher and you are a private equity group and you want to get into this space, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, you need to get through, you know, if you're aggressively wanting to get into this space, you're now the underdog. Like you are now the tortoise and not the hare. Does that that make sense? And it's been the total opposite over the last seven or eight years where family office and private equity have come into the space and they wipe out the existing operators who are making offers on these businesses at lower values. But now it's it's different. It's like their execution is poor, you know, and I've been in this business a long time. I tell you, I put our list and our contacts of private equity and family offices against anyone in the country and anyone in the world, including every bank in Wall Street, all of them. And they're just not the private equity groups are not really well made for franchising investments. So they take up a lot of headline space on these news articles, but they rarely come through. And the maybe, thing I've maybe said for a while is when we have a deal on the market, it's out there for three or four weeks. And anybody watching this knows that we don't slap something on a website and have it linger there for six months. That's not how we operate. If I've got to convince you why you should enter a brand in a three to four week period, there's a 90% chance. You find something out during diligence you don't like and you kill the deal. If you don't already want the brand when you see the deal come to market, there's a 10% chance that deal closes. My 5%. job is to convince someone that already wants to be in the brand. They love Pizza Hut or KFC or Burger King. Why this particular business is good for them. That's how I view my job. If I have to convince you to enter a brand in a three to four week period, that deal is going to die all day. And I'll tell my sellers that have no qualms about being truthful because it happens a lot. 
as a buyer, know the brands you want to get into. Don't take it down the road, do your diligence on a brand when you have exclusivity and then kill it. Seems like more and more that's happening. It's happening a lot. And our forewarning for those of you who are listening to it is that we're all wise to it now after a couple of years of being in negotiations and discussions with some of these types of buyers who aren't fully buttoned up in the brand. They haven't been down to talk with the senior executives at the brand. They haven't gotten their brand approval. They're just trolling the marketplace, throwing in offers on businesses and then trying to figure it out later. Well, I mean, he said, Derek said it's a 10% chance that deal closes. I think it's less than 5% chance that deal closes. So if you um, are a private equity buyer or an independent sponsor, okay, and you're making offers on these businesses, get buttoned up before you come to us or any other advisor or any seller when you're trying to buy a business. That would be, I think, the best advice that you could hear from any of us for 2024. And to flip it into something else, to the mid-scale and to your strategic buyers, to your existing family offices sell that. And if you're making an offer and you want to put yourself out, if you want to stand out, know the brand, have your pre-approval or an email from franchisor that they like you, you're somewhat approved. Obviously, everything you got to go through formalities when you get a deal, but use that to your advantage. Don't be silent about it. If you love the brand, if you've already done all your diligence on a brand, you've met the corporate team, obviously, if you're already in the system, use that to your advantage, sell it. Because that's an that's an advantage that you should have and you should use it when you're submitting offers. It's, it's gonna be one of the first questions we ask too during the conversations as well. Deals have gotten more arduous. They're taking longer time. There's a higher risk that they fall apart. The due diligence is a lot harder. I mean, all of it. Transfer approval takes a longer amount of time. EBITDA, the P&Ls are going up and down with all of the still dealing with the after effects of, of COVID. And uh, you don't want to introduce like the risk of somebody who likes your house, but doesn't know what city it's in type of like, and wants to get wise to what the city is where your house is located. Like that doesn't make sense, right? So you don't want to take that risk if, unless that's the only person that's out there to buy your business. I'm going to make a comment, one quick comment about why sell now or what, why people should be considering selling now. And then we're going to end with answering two questions, okay? Because we got about 10 minutes left and they're good questions that are meaty questions that I think the audience will want to hear. So why sell now? Times look better in 2023 than 2022. A lot of the pricing initiatives probably have taken full hold at the end of Q1 or in the middle of Q1 of 2024. So these businesses trade on a trailing 12-month, rolling 13-period EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA basis. And I think you're probably back to a more normal period of rolling 13 periods around the first quarter of 2024 than we've seen over the last four to four and a half years. That might be a reason someone would choose to sell in 2024. Plus the fact that they may have gone through some psychological and emotional damage with all of the difficult of operating these businesses over that time. It's been hard. I mean, it's hard to operate our business, right? It's not easy to operate these businesses in this environment. It looks like we have some geopolitical risk that's increasing. It looks like could we have a recession this year? Consumer spending seems a little bit tough. Transactions are hard to get. There's a lot of competition from these pesky upstart and really well-heeled now new brands out there. I think I said it on a, on one of the podcasts recently. I was at Waco at our daughter's university. And I mean, you go to, to the street corner there and there were like six or seven new brands, like the ones, you you know, they have like two or 300 locations, like a Hawaiian concept, a coffee concept, a Greek concept, all these like new in and out, like all these things. And you walk and you go into them 
and like they're clean assets, they're well run, the drive-throughs are fast. And like, then you look across the street at the ones we all know and the ones that we're doing business with all the time. And I'm left with the conclusion that they're going to get the rear ends kicked by these new concepts. And so I think we're all needing to kind of see that, that like we all have to up our game, right? I mean, we ought I mean, for whether you're playing football or whether you're operating restaurants, man, you have to know your competition and up your game. If you are a legacy chicken or pizza or whatever burger provider, don't be ignorant to the fact that there are people nipping at your heels with better service, better food and better speed than you. Be wary of that. And they may overtake you quickly and you may be the next Howard Johnson. Who the heck knows? So here's a question. What are the considerations when timing a sale successfully and getting it closed this year? Comments real quickly? Yeah, I think truly 12 months. You want to time it just right. You don't want to be maxed out. And then the next couple of months during due diligence, confirmatory due diligence, sales start to drop, EBITDA start to drop, and then it has an effect on the transaction. Um, you know, buyer signs an LOI and APA and EBITDA is down, sales are down, then you're going to have a problem during the deal. So Ideally, you would want it to be flat or maybe a little higher in EBITDA going into it. But the process is long. It's, it's not a three or four month process anymore. It's five, six, seven months. And so you've got to stay in the game and, and just make sure your financials are as good as they possibly be with the possible uh, possible upside there. We, of course, try to condense that, but there are things out of your control. And I, w- I want to touch on something Rick just said about the new upstarts nipping at your butt and just the pesky small franchise franchisors looking to overtake you. Don't look at that as a negative comment, but could come off that way. Obviously, our bread and butter has been legacy brands throughout the history of Unbridled. And even us, we see competitors of ourselves and we've got to react and do better and get better. So don't think of that as a negative comment, but it is a true comment. It's a real comment. If you just get complacent and your operations falter, your employees falter, your time, your your drive-through times falter, your cleanliness falters. People see that. And now they have options. They have more options than probably ever before. I would say that's probably a fact is they can go over across the street to the new Greek place that's perfectly clean and and they can get it out in and out of the drive-through in, in, in a couple of minutes and the food's hot and fresh and all this. So don't don't think of it as a negative comment, but it's a real comment. Don't get complacent and because uh, the consumer can speak, they'll speak with their money. And at the end of the day, they have a lot of options. We're fighting for transactions. And I say all this with love for the legacy brands that have made my career and livelihood that I love to death, right? I wear the badge on my sleeve every day. So good point, Derek. I mean, uh, Peter made a comment that I, I would just want you guys to listen to. If you haven't heard this from us before, when you sell a company, It needs to be flat to slightly positive, if it can be, during the six months of due diligence, because because that's going to go a long way to preventing a retrade or buyer financing getting changing in a negative way because the covenants have changed or the conditions of borrowing have changed. So don't hold on to this company until one minute before it's going to drop in sales and then sell it. A lot of people think that way, but you really want it to be going mildly up. If you can't get it up in sales, at least maybe mildly up in EBITDA while the transaction is transpiring, that's the way to have the smoothest type of a, a deal that will close in any year, but certainly in 2024. Any final comments, gentlemen, that you all might have? Let's see. We have a question still on the board, which is what are some buyer considerations when doing a deal in 2024? So let's talk about those for a minute. I mean, what if you're a buyer and you're about to buy something and you're in the marketplace, what comments would we have for you? 
You know, I think I think the biggest one that I that I tell people and that we tell people a lot, and this isn't necessarily like if you're a hundred unit franchisee in a certain brand, you already picked your brand and you know what you want to do. I'm more referring to the group looking to either get into new brands or somebody new and coming into QSR altogether. Pick a few brands that you really like. Don't buy into something because the multiple is good or it's a decent geography and it's all that's out there. You need to believe in the brand you're buying into, or you're like, there's a good chance you're going to fail regardless. Believe in the brand. And I know they change often, but believe in the leadership team too. If you like the brand and you go meet the leadership team and and think they're horrible, you probably want to rethink getting into that brand. If you're mediocre on a brand and you think the leadership team's great and they're going to take the brand in the future, that's probably the most important thing in my eyes is believing in that leadership team. And, and just as, you know, just under that is believing in the brand itself. But the brand, to an extent, is what the leadership team is at the moment. In addition to that, like we said, we think EBITDA is going to be a little more stable this year. I don't think you expect any massive crazy lifts. I don't think we're expecting any massive drops. Obviously, there are going to be exceptions to that rule. But we had three years of pretty big volatility in 2020, 21, and 22. And it feels like we're in a little bit more of a stable time period. Again, until some ship gets stuck in a canal somewhere and you got a six-month delay on getting product, <laughs> you know, who knows? Or another superpower decides to invade somebody, you never know what's going to happen. But generally speaking, it feels like a little bit more stable in, a, in the micro restaurant level. Any comments, Peter? And then I'll make the final comment. I just think also you got to look at your current business as a whole what do your sales look like in the future throughout the rest of the year what's your margins look like what's your leverage look like because you know more equity is going to be needed in the future with least le- least adjusted leverage dropping so it's not just uh, you, know, you know derek mentions if you're going to diversify if you're going to stay in the same brand you still got to make sure you're taking care of what you have at the, at the time so that, that was my only comment yeah and i would wrap it up by saying be ready if you're a buyer and if you're a seller just be ready be prepared i mean you've got be ready. Be ready with your capital. Be ready with the diligence that you've done on the brand. Be ready for the opportunity when it presents itself. I think the main message that I would deliver today for 2024 and watch it be wrong, but I mean, my heart, I feel this way right now, that it's kind of a return to normalcy. Like 2024 is probably buying and selling is, is kind of the supply and demand of it is probably going to kind of even out. will probably be like some of the years like in 2004. 13 or 2014. I mean, I'm just trying to think back into the past years where like there's a decent amount of activity. Deals are happening. Cost of financing is a little higher. P&Ls are fairly predictable. The environment is not awful, not awesome. It's somewhere in between. And it's back to what we know about this business, which is it's never been a business where you're swinging for grand slams. It's been a business where you're hitting singles and you're sliding into second base and you're not sure if you're out or safe. This is a business that's been up 1% or 2%, both in terms of sales and profits. I mean, that's kind of what it does. And it does it basically alongside GDP growth, plus or minus. So that's what we're back into. So be ready. If you're a seller, the marketplace isn't bad. It's not bad at all, actually. Probably replicates what it'll be for the next several years, absent any crazy things happening. And if you're a buyer, there's going to be more opportunities this year. So be ready and be ready. And you might find some good opportunities for you. So that's all we have today. I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who are watching and, and will listen. Call us if you need our help in any way. And uh, thank you, Derek. And thank you, Peter, for uh, being a part of this. I hope it was informative. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thank you all. Thanks so much for entering the boiler room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. 
If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.